Hello, everybody. Welcome to a new episode of The Dissenter. I'm your host, as always, Ricardo Lopes, and today I'm joined by Dr. James Lee. He is Associate Professor of Psychology and a member of the Graduate Faculty of Bioinformatics and Computational Biology at the University of Minnesota. And today we're talking about some topics in behavioral genetics, like genome-wide association studies, educational attainment, intelligence, the use of alcohol and tobacco, and some other related topics. So, Dr. Lee, welcome to the show. It's a pleasure to have you on. Good speaking with you, Ricardo. So let's start with GWAS then, G that is genome-wide association studies. I've already had some other behavioral geneticists on the show and we touched on this topic before, but basically what information can we get from this kind of study? Um, well, first let me briefly describe what a GWAS is just to refresh everyone's mm -hmm. memory. Yeah. Uh, so at GWAS, we have data on uh, an individual's genotypes, uh, basically what genes they're carrying at uh, hundreds of thousands, millions of sites scattered across the genome. Typically in such a study, we have many thousands, sometimes more than a million individuals. And then we just go site by site at all of these places in the genome where people can differ from each other. We basically... Um, more or less calculate the correlation between each site and the trait that we're studying, whether that's height, diabetes, intelligence, years of education, what have you. And so then basically we end up with what, what are called um, the, the statistics from the GWAS, which is basically a measure of how strongly correlated each SNP, as we call them, uh, single nucleotide polymorphism, SNP being the abbreviation, how strongly correlated each of these SNPs is with the trait. So what is the use of that information? Um, well, there are a lot of uses. Uh, we can perform various downstream analyses of the GWAS statistics. For example, we can see whether the most strongly correlated SNPs tend to be disproportionately located in certain parts of the genome. Uh, for example, in or near genes that are highly expressed in a particular tissue or a cell type. Um, sometimes this... Um, uh, can be fairly informative. Um, oftentimes, this kind of analysis just tells you what you already thought. Like, you apply it to a GWAS of, um, of 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 heart disease, and it'll tell you that the important biology, the important tissues are cardiovascular tissue, the cardiovascular system, uh, blood vessels, and so on. Sometimes that or a bit unexpected or weren't what some people were hoping for various reasons because of their own pet hypotheses. For example, uh, when the G a GWAS of body mass index was published in 2015, uh, the biological annotation analyses basically came back with the result that uh, the most important tissue or organ here is the brain. Um, uh, the SNPs that are most strongly correlated with BMI uh, tend to lie in or near regions of the genome highly expressed in various neural tissues. Um, so that indicates that um, BMI seems to be actually a behavioral or brain-mediated mediated trait, something to do with uh, self-control or something like that. Mm -hmm. Um I guess some people didn't expect or didn't like that result because it sort of contradicted their own ideas about, well, 
uh, we have an obesity crisis, what would be the best way to think of coming up with treatments for this? Um, um, but that that but that undoubtedly is useful, uh, knowing where to look or where to stop looking, or where to, what to deprioritize, what to prioritize. Um, so that's something useful we can get out of GWAS. Mm -hmm. um, you can also answer basic questions about so-called etiology. That's a bit of jargon we have for like, what is it that causes a certain disease or a certain trait to manifest itself in a certain way? Uh, so one example of this, um, people have long wondered whether there's some kind of shared causal basis underlying schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Schizophrenia has traditionally been thought of as a disorder of cognition. Uh, bipolar disorder has usually been thought to be a disorder of mood. Um, mm. But there are some common symptoms, and people have wondered whether there's something in common between them. Uh, it would be difficult to answer this question just using phenotypic data, that is, data on uh, the observed trait. You know, is this person but diagnosed with schizophrenia or not, and so on. Mm -hmm. Uh, for one thing, uh, especially in a small country, like suppose a Scandinavian country, uh, you might not have that many schizophrenics and patients diagnosed with bipolar disorder to be able to really calculate these things with statistical precision, whether there's some kind of overlap between them. In this particular case, uh, we have the situation where, according to the our current diagnostic practices, uh, you can't simultaneously by be diagnosed with schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Uh, so if you're diagnosed with one, if we want to diagnose you with the other one for some reason, we have to switch the diagnosis. Uh, so this, by definition, so to speak, makes it impossible to calculate whether there's any kind of overlap between these two disorders. And we have to resort to very indirect methods or somewhat indirect methods, such as saying, well, you're diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Uh, do you have more relatives than we would expect who are diagnosed with the other disorder, schizophrenia? However, uh, what we can do with GWAS is that we can do meta-analyses um, uh, that these are performed by these international collaborations that can span many countries, so you can get really up there in the numbers. Uh, then we could calculate this quantity called the genetic correlation. Uh, you can imagine that this is sort of... Um, so you imagine that a trait is just the sum of a genetic part plus the environmental part. If you can subtract away the environmental part, uh, you have something that's left, obviously the genetic part. And you can imagine what, asking what is the correlation between that genetic part and the similarly defined genetic part of some other trait, right? Mm -hmm. And we can calculate this in GWAS uh, with high precision because of these large sample sizes. Uh, it is not necessarily the case that we have to have individuals with all of the traits uh, measured. Uh, we can have a totally disjoint sample of people who've been assessed for schizophrenia, a totally disjoint set of controls, and other people have been diagnosed with bipolar disorder. Uh, we can still calculate the genetic correlation because you're essentially asking, is a SNP that's strongly associated with the one trait also tend to be strongly associated with the other trait? And... Um, and for in the case of schizophrenia and bipolar disorder, this is an example I've been using, we've calculated that the genetic correlation between these two traits is about 0 0.65, 0 0.7. Uh, I remember when this result was reported about 10 years ago, uh, specialists in the field, people who've been working in psychopathology for a long time, initially expressed skepticism, um, but uh, it's been replicated and 
Uh, this is just an example of the kind of basic scientific question you could answer with GWAS that it's difficult to answer uh, in any other way. And so before we get into some of the specific examples of psychological traits that you study in behavioral genetics through GWAS and other methods out there, could you tell us exactly what heritability means? What does that mean exactly? And how should we interpret that, for example, an heritability of a particular uh, trait is X? Sure. So, uh, I mean, there are different kinds of heritability, but we can start off by saying that the heritability is the fraction of the variance in the trait that's caused by genetic differences in the population mm -hmm. you're looking at. So the variance is just a measure of how spread out people are from the average. Um, so the bigger the variance, uh, the more likely it is that people are very far in either direction, low or high from the average of the population. Conversely, if the variance is very low or say it's zero, if the variance is zero, that never happens, but suppose it did, that would mean that everyone in the population was the same. Uh, there was no variation at all. And so you have a measure of how spread out people are, how much people differ from each other. And a heritability is basically the fraction of the variance that's due to genetic differences. Um, so if you get a number like 0.5, that's saying that half of this spread uh, around the population average is caused by genetic differences between uh, the people you have in your population. So it's roughly speaking, you can think of it as, uh, I mean, people will quibble about this, but roughly speaking, you could think of it as a quantification of the, uh, an answer to the question of how genetic is a trait roughly. Um, so the idea is that if the heritability of a trait is like 0.1, we would say, okay, that's not very heritable. So most of the differences in this population are not genetically caused. Whereas if you come back with a number like 0 0.7, 0 0.8, uh, those are numbers we kind of get for height, say. We would say the majority of the individual differences, the variance in the population is caused by how different people are genetically from each other. So that's a rough and ready idea of what heritability means. So you can think, basically think of it as a number that ranges between zero and one. Uh, if it's close to zero, uh, not very genetic, roughly speaking. Whereas if it's closer to one, uh, then we can kind of roughly think, okay, the trait is more genetic. And so let's go through some of the traits that you've studied. Um, educational attainment. What is that exactly? And does it have a genetic basis? So educational attainment, um, that's important to distinguish from educational achievement, which is usually thought of as a score on some kind of achievement test or end of school test. Right. Uh, when we say educational attainment, we just mean how long did you stay in school? How long did you persist in school? Um, or what's the highest degree that you obtained? Uh, high school or secondary school, whatever you call it, uh, then university and then graduate school and so on. Mm -hmm. um, actually, what is the heritability of years of education or educational attainment? Uh, that's not very clear because of um, uh, various complications, such as it seems that people tend to be born into environments that... Uh, People who are genetically disposed to seek higher education seem to be born into environments that 
also tend to promote educational attainments, um, perhaps. So this is a complication. Another complication is something we call assortative mating. Mm -hmm. Assortative mating just refers to the tendency of people to uh, have offspring with partners who are similar to them in whatever trait we're talking about. So if the trait is height, and we say there's a sort of mating for height, that just means that fathers who are taller than average, um, they tend to be paired up with mothers who are taller than average. And shorter than average goes with shorter than average as well. Um, educational attainment actually is uh, a trait that shows unusually strong assorted mating when we consider all the traits that we've looked at. Um, so this complicates attempts to estimate heritability as well. Um, I would say, though, that even after taking... Um, I don't know. I will compromise and say that um, taking into account all these complications and taking my best guess, I would say that years of education has a moderate heritability. Um, so not as heritable as, say, height or IQ, but uh, not, not vanishingly small. And do we have a, a good idea of the environmental factors that influence educational attainment? Um, well, um, one kind of design we use in behavioral genetics uh, is adoption. So we look at people who have been reared by... Um, whatever reason, they're orphans, uh, they're reared by parents who are not their biological parents. Mm -hmm. And um, and this is a powerful design. We can use it to look at uh, the effects of certain environmental factors. Um, so there have been some studies. Um, these tend to be studies of international adoptions. Um, uh, for example, in America, we have large numbers of adoptees who were born in South Korea. Uh, this is a practice dating back to the Korean War. And uh, in some of these studies, the placement of the adoptees with their families does seem to be random. Uh, uh, for example, there's this adoption agency called Holt, and the way they seem to do it is um, uh, you have applications for from families who want to adopt just piling up. You have files for uh, kids who've just been born who need a home to be placed in. Uh, their files pile up. And every so often, they just kind of, you know, shuffle them together, match them together. Yeah. Um, as far as we can tell, this does simulate a random process. Uh, and what we like about randomness is that this is the best design for causal inference. If you see a correlation between X and Y and you know that the the people or whatever it is you're studying, they've been randomly allotted to the different levels of X. Um, that means that the correlation must be caused by X. Okay. Mm -hmm. And uh, the adoption design has been applied to educational attainment, years of education. Uh, and one thing we can say is that um, the parents' years of education does show a, I would say, a weak correlation with the educational attainment of the offspring. So this, I said weak, this correlation is not as strong as what we observe in biological families, uh, but it is there. Um, so it seems that the parents' own years of education are something highly correlated with the parents' um, educational attainment is something that affects the offspring educational attainment.
Yeah. And perhaps this is commonsensical. I mean, in, in America recently, well, maybe a few years back, we had a scandal, uh, a fairly well-known university here, the University of Southern California. It was discovered that um, certain parents, wealthy parents, celebrities, minor celebrities had basically bribed um, their kids into getting into USC. Uh, there's a common rumor circulating in certain circles that if you donate X amount of money to Harvard, depending on who's telling the story, 5 million, 10 million, that, okay, uh, your kid's application to Harvard is going to be looked on much more favorably. Um, so maybe this is something that was not totally unexpected. Mm -hmm. um, I would say, though, that... Um, Maybe this is getting really into the weeds, but uh, when we do GWAS of years of education, we look at the results, uh, we can compare the discrepancy between the GWAS results we obtain in a population of unrelated individuals, the discrepancy between that and the GWAS results we get when we look at um, within families. Mm -hmm. so for example, if we look at sibling pairs, um, and siblings can differ genetically from each other because of uh, the randomness of Mendelian segregation. Uh, that was something Gregor Mendel discovered when he basically founded the science of genetics. He discovered that um, at each site in the genome, you have two, two alleles, let's call them. One you inherited from your father, the other from your mother. When it becomes time for you to become a parent yourself, uh, which one goes? Well, it turns out that uh, it's a random member of each pair. Uh, it's almost like nature tosses a coin to decide whether you pass on your parental gene or your maternal gene at any given site. And so this is a natural example of randomization. Uh, it's not a human experimenter that randomly assigns the genotypes within the family. Nature does it, uh, but it's effectively the same for purposes of causal inference. Uh, so we can be very confident when we conduct hypothesis testing and, you know, with some reasonable assumptions, effect estimation as well. And when we do it in a within-family design, we are unambiguously getting at uh, the causal effects of uh, genetic variation on this phenotype. Okay, that was a bit long-winded, but the point I was getting to is that when we do within-family GWAS for years of education, uh, we get effects that are smaller than the effects that we seem to get in Population GWAS, that is GWAS of unrelated individuals. Uh, so there's some kind of confounding that uh, is being removed in the within-family GWAS, some kind of third variable that is correlated with genetic variation that is also affecting years of education. Now, the interesting thing is that, that the confounding variable were the parents' own years of education. Uh, if the parents are highly educated, um, they figure out, well, what do I have to do to get my kids into college? Um, and they and they and they use those tricks. They pass on the knowledge. You would expect the discrepancies. Uh, we can call these indirect genetic effects. Um, I kind of don't like that term, but uh, let's just use it. We can call the discrepancy between the causal within the family effect and the uh, apparent population effect the indirect genetic effect. If the confounder were the parents' years of education or something closely related, the parents' income or their social class we would expect the indirect genetic effect to be proportional to the direct genetic effect. Um, why we predict that, it's a little hard to explain, but um, for now, I guess you just have to take my word for it. 
Uh, thanks to the work of uh, Alex Young, we now know that for years of education, that is not the case. Um, the indirect effects are not proportional to the uh, direct effects. Uh, why that's the case, it's it's actually somewhat mysterious to me. I mean, it could be that there's some kind of selection bias often. Uh, for example, the UK Biobank, which is a big database we often rely on, the participants are slightly selected, non-representative. Uh, they're a bit higher in social class and years of education than the British population as a whole. That might have something to do with this. But another big factor could possibly be that the confounder in this case is not something it's not i mean it's not the parents own achievement or education or class or whatever it's something it's something else mm -hmm. and does educational attainment correlate with cognitive ability yes um so uh i think you said achievement i think you meant that but you meant attainment right um yes yes it's attainment yeah. Uh, so, yeah. Um, so the phenotypic correlation, that is, if you just measure IQ, say, and then you measure years of education, you calculate the correlation. Uh, it's not that high. Uh, it's moderate. It might be like 0.5 or something like that. However, when you calculate this genetic correlation that I spoke of earlier, uh, you get an even higher uh, 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 correlation uh, that is something like 0.7, uh, something like that. Um, so that's something we often observe. Sometimes we calculate the genetic correlation and it is higher in magnitude than the, the trait level or the phenotypic correlation. Um, so often it seems that the environmental part of a trait often acts as kind of like noise or measurement error, uh, attenuating the underlying genetic correlation. And so the relationship between uh, IQ and years of education seems to be an example of that, where um, the environmental noise influencing these two traits respectively tends to make the phenotypic correlation or the trait level correlation lower than the genetic correlation. Mm -hmm. And since I asked you about cognitive ability, how heritable is IQ? Okay. Um, I think here's a good point to bring out what I mentioned earlier, which is that there's different kinds of heritability. Mm -hmm. um, so uh, first we can distinguish between what we call narrow sense heritability and broad sense heritability. Okay. Um, so narrow sense heritability includes only uh, the additive effects of genes. Um, so if we say that a phenotype such as IQ is just equal to... Um, how many genes you have at this site uh, weighted by the effect plus how many genes you have at the second site plus how many genes you have at the third site and so on. Um, so this is like just linear regression. Some of your listeners might know about that. Um, and then we ask, well, how much, what fraction of the variance can we capture with this linear or this additive equation? Uh, it's kind of, That's kind of like a regression R squared, linear regression R squared. Uh, that's the narrow sense heritability. Now, the broad sense heritability is the narrow sense heritability plus variance contributed by interactions between genes. Um, mm -hmm. So in statistics, we say that two variables interact uh, when the way they combine to affect um, some variable, some outcome variable, 
uh, is not by like this additive equation, variable one plus variable two. Instead, you might need to have variable one plus variable two plus um, the product of those two variables or some other nonlinear, non-additive function. So the best way to estimate the broad sense heritability of a trait is by looking at uh, monozygotic twins reared apart. Um, monozygotic twins or identical twins. Mm -hmm. uh, so I talked about how siblings differ from each other genetically because they receive different random halves of their parents' genomes, roughly speaking. Uh, in contrast, uh, monozygotic twins uh, have identical genomes up to maybe, I don't know, a small handful of mutations, but essentially identical genomes, uh, including all these statistical interactions between different genes um, that I was talking about. And so you can look at the correlation between these types of twins, and that's an estimate of the broad sense heritability. Uh, so the two most recent studies of identical twins reared apart uh, where IQ was measured. Uh, one was done here at Minnesota by my predecessor, Tom Bouchard, and his collaborators, uh, Nancy Siegel, Matt McGew, Alcatelligen, David Licken. Um, uh, and then another one that was uh, arguably less ascertained, it was based on these registers they have in Scandinavia. Uh, one was done in Sweden. Mm -hmm. They both got very similar answers that the broad sense heritability of IQ seems to be about 0.75. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's basically saying if you account for all these statistical uh, interactions between genes, uh, you get roughly three quarters of the total variance in IQ uh, being due to genetic factors, uh, differences in genetic factors in the, in the population. Now, for various reasons, uh, you, you can be interested in the narrow sense heritability instead of the broad sense heritability. Uh, one of those reasons being that in GWAS, it's generally not practical to try to estimate all these statistical interactions because, uh, because the genome is so huge. Uh, you have millions of sites, and to just calculating interactions between pairs of sites, uh, every possible pair, uh, when you're talking about millions, we quickly have this problem that we call a combinatorial explosion. Mm -hmm. uh, so what we can practically do in GWAS for the most part is just fit additive models. So that basically means that if you're talking about, well, um, are we capturing all the heritability in GWAS? Is there any missing heritability, so to speak, some kind of um, type of genetic variant that we're not capturing with SNPs perhaps? Uh, you're interested in whether you're going to converge in the narrow sense heritability. So a better way to estimate the narrow sense heritability is to basically look at the correlations between parents and offspring. This is because parents and offspring, um, a lot of kinds of non-additive statistical interactions are not shared between parents and offspring. Uh, the way you can think of it is that suppose you have some strange phenotype or strange deviation to your phenotype that depends on uh, these 12 genes that you have in your genome and all 12 of them have to be passed on to your offspring in order for that statistical interaction to be preserved, uh, for it to be passed on intact. Well, the probability of that is um, is basically like half to the power 12, which is a very small number. Um, so basically, uh, what you pass on to your offspring are the additive or the linear effects of genes, not these statistical interactions. And, uh, and when we look at uh, studies that have done this, uh, looking at parent-offspring resemblance in IQ, 
We get estimates of narrow sense heritability that are between like, I don't know, 0.4 and 0.6. All right. Mm -hmm. 0.4 and 0.6. So it seems that this is lower than the 0.75 that I mentioned earlier. Um, so uh, 0.4 and 0.6. Now, there's a question. Um, I talked about how in GWAS, we can just sort of look at the progress that we've made to date, uh, add up all the variants that all the SNPs that we've discovered, um, what what it adds up to. Uh, in theory, as as we have a get a even larger sample size, the variance that we account for in GWAS should converge to the narrow sense heritability. And so we have a technique that tries to measure this, even if we're sort of at a preliminary stage of the GWAS where we haven't identified all the SNPs at a very high degree of confidence yet. Um, uh, this method is called different things, but uh, I'll just call it GREML. Um, so GREML is a way to try to estimate heritability from GWAS data or, or whole genome sequencing data now. Uh, so there's one study by Luke Evans and a number of others um, uh, that applied GREML to um, a cohort with uh, genetic data and IQ data, going down to fairly low uh, allele frequency SNPs. So this is a pretty broad spectrum of SNPs, uh, more than we usually look at in GWAS. Uh, and they got an estimate of what is the genetic DNA level heritability, so to speak, of IQ. Uh, this was a measure of IQ, I think, um, measured with some kind of matrix reasoning test. Uh, they got a number of 0 0.39 uh, with mm -hmm. a standard error of 0 0.08. Uh, and obviously that shows pretty broad overlap with uh, the, 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 these parent offspring studies I told you earlier, uh, which come back with figures of like 0 0.4 to 0 0.6. Um, so everything, all this looks fairly reasonable. We would expect the narrow sense heritability be less than the broad sense heritability. Uh, the GWAS heritability to be less than the narrow sense heritability, even more so. Uh, but with extrapolation using GREML, they should be roughly in the ballpark. And that's how things look at the moment. Mm -hmm. So I would like to ask you about another couple of traits here. So alcohol and tobacco use. Are they heritable as well? Uh, yes. Um, so uh, uh, I'm not as familiar with all of the twin studies and so on of alcohol and tobacco use, but um, um, but uh, they do show that the trait is heritable. For example, biological relatives resemble each other more than adoptive relatives. Uh, identical twins resemble each other more than dizygotic twins. Um, and here we see reasonable agreement as well. Uh, so recently here at Minnesota, uh, a group of researchers led by uh, Sun Jang. Uh, um, wait, I think her last name is Kang. Uh, that's, that's I'm, I'm afraid. Uh, sorry about that, Sun, if I messed that up. But uh, anyway, uh, they estimated the heritability of smoking, for example. Using the traditional behavioral genetic biometrical design, looking at the resemblance between relatives, um, they estimated the heritability of smoking to be about 0.3. Uh, they also used this GREML technique, um, applying it to whole genome sequencing data to estimate the heritability of smoking that way. 
And this method was a bit noisy and had a, a bit of error attached to it, but that was also um, around 0.3 as well. So here again, we seem to have um, a convergence from different methods on a heritability of about 0.3 for um, so whether, you, whether you smoke or not. Um, so yes, these traits are heritable. And are these two traits genetically related to each other in any way? That is, if someone is prone to alcohol use, is she also at higher risk of using tobacco and vice versa? Yes. Um, so drinking problems, for example, show comorbidity. Mm -hmm. uh, it's just jargon that means correlation, uh, you know, bad things going together. Comorbidity with many other bad outcomes, uh, especially problems with other substances. Mm -hmm. so I believe the genetic correlation between smoking and uh, alcohol problems is about 0.4. Mm -hmm. In fact, some psychologists, um, they look at this uh, tobacco and alcohol use, for example, going together. And, and, and for that reason, they consider tobacco, alcohol, and also uh, marijuana, abuse of other drugs, uh, promiscuity, risk-taking in general, yeah. uh, attention deficit hyperactivity disorder, as all kind of being indicators or symptoms, so to speak, of a uh, common externalizing disorder. Um, mm -hmm. Sometimes disorders are called internalizing because they have to do with um, overthinking things or ruminating too much. Externalizing, in contrast, uh, is more has to do with uh, acting out. And so there's this idea of an externalizing disorder that encompasses, uh, for example, the abuse of all these different drugs. Um, I would add something that's kind of interesting uh, about this, though. Mm -hmm. So smoking, when we've done GWAS of it, um, one thing that's unusual about smoking is that... Um, there are there's there's a, there's there's a single SNP uh, and other SNPs that are highly correlated that show a correlation with smoking that are much much stronger than the background. Uh, what I mean by that is that usually when you do a GWAS of a trait like height or IQ, uh, you have your top SNP say that accounts for like I don't know 0.03 percent of the variance something like that, and then you have your Second top SNP that has a slightly smaller correlation, and then your third top SNP has a slightly smaller correlation. Uh, but smoking is not like that in that there's a one SNP that has a much bigger effect than any other SNP. And in fact, GWAS researchers call this SNP Mr. Big. Uh, <laughs> I'm told this comes from some popular TV show from a while back. But uh, uh, anyway... Uh, so big is relative. Usually in GWAS, common SNPs have small effects. Uh, so the difference between the two homozygotes, that is the difference between the the minus minus genotype and the plus plus genotype at Mr. Big is about, about 1.3 cigarettes smoked per day. Okay. So that might not sound like much, but that's much bigger than the second biggest SNP. Okay. Mm -hmm. That kind of makes smoking unusual. Now, alcoholism uh, in its GWAS has its own Mr. Big. Um, so the smoking Mr. Big is a um, protein-altering SNP in this gene called CHRNA5. That's um, nicotinic cholinergic receptor, uh, the fifth one. 
alcoholism, Mr. Big, is located in ADH1B. That stands for alcohol dehydrogenase 1B. So this, again, towers over all the other SNP effects in this GWAS. Uh, when you measure the phenotype on a scale of drinks per week, the two homozygotes differ by roughly a third of a drink per week. Mm -hmm. So why do we see this pattern for alcohol tobacco use that we don't see for other traits? Um, my interpretation or my hypothesis is that um, alcohol and tobacco use are evolutionary unusual traits. Um, so these SNPs perhaps pre-existed in human populations. Uh, but then, you know, roughly about 12,000 years ago, uh, some human populations figured out how to make alcohol. In fact, I think there are some scientists, archaeologists who think that um, that domestication, uh, agriculture, and so on was driven as much by the desire to brew things as by to grow things <laughs> for eating. Um yeah. Uh, smoking, of course, um, in concentrated form in like, you know, pipes or cigarettes or whatever is even more recent, obviously. Um, so I think what happens is that you have these pre-existing polymorphisms that had small effects, close to neutral. That's why they existed. But then you have these novel um, environmental factors um, uh, on which these things are, are, are having big effects. Okay. Mm -hmm. um, whereas, so these SNPs wouldn't have mattered before we discovered alcohol and tobacco. Uh, now they matter now. Um, um, and in, in the case of alcohol, there's might be some other complicated things going on, maybe heterozygote advantage, but um, um, uh, so let me wind up. So mm -hmm. there is a common liability or a common risk that underlies all these substances not just alcohol and tobacco, but uh, marijuana, opiates, uh, other substances. Uh, but there are these strange, weird things um, that are particular to the biology of smoking. So um, the reason why the receptor is called the nicotinic uh, receptor is because that's the receptor that nicotine binds to. Uh, nicotine is not supposed to bind there in some sense. Uh, you have this neurotransmitter that you naturally make called acetylcholine that is supposed to stick to that receptor, uh, but then nicotine is uh, binds even more strongly and that leads to the psychoactive effects. Uh, alcohol dehydrogenase, these are genes that encode enzymes that are important in the alcohol breakdown pathway. Um, uh, these confer risk only for their respective substances, okay? So if you have um, the uh, the susceptible version, so to speak, of the nicotine receptor, that increases your risk only of smoking, not of drinking or or other kinds of drugs. Uh, similarly, having the um, versions of of alcohol dehydrogenase that don't work as well or whatever, they increase your risk of alcoholism, but not of say smoking. Mm -hmm. So. This is a nice example of how you can have like a, uh, I don't know what you would call it, a common liability, a common factor that contributes to different things. But then you also have uh, specific things that affect only uh, particular indicators or, or disorders or symptoms. And in this case, it's kind of nice how we can clearly see how, uh, for biological reasons, we have this specificity. Right. So I would like to ask you now about... Um fertility and reproductive behavior 
Are these kinds of traits also heritable? Uh, yeah, probably. Um, uh, the reason I say that probably is because in GWAS at least, um, uh, these traits show pretty large uh, indirect genetic effects uh, that I was talking about earlier. Yeah. Uh, that is, uh, you look within families, and that's uh, the causally strongest design. Uh, you get effects, and you compare them to the population GWAS, uh, and you get fairly large discrepancies. Although how large, it's hard to say. Um, uh, we have lots of error and noise in these estimates. Um, um, uh, but yeah, um, it's it's uh, it's. Um, based on the preliminary picture we have now uh yeah it's much more likely than not that these traits are heritable as well mm -hmm. uh, and so uh what about we've been talking about the heritability of uh, different kinds of behaviors that you've studied and the concept of heritability in general what about lay beliefs about the heritability of behavior? I mean, are lay people's judgments of that accurate? Yeah, so we've done some studies about that. Uh, kind of interested in what people think about things like this. Um, mm -hmm. So uh, in, one, in, in this one study of ours, we asked people to rate a bunch of traits uh you know schizophrenia adhd bipolar disorder height uh intelligence political views uh, i can't remember all of them but those were some of them mm -hmm. we asked them to just rate how genetic do you think these traits are uh we did not give them like this fancy scientific definition of heritability we just kind of asked for their intuitive answer to this question yeah. um then we compared how the, the, the respondents answered to actual heritability estimates from the literature um, based on twin studies. And what we found surprisingly is that, um, well, at the individual level, like an individual rater might not be particularly accurate, but if you average the ratings of, uh, uh, of several people, um, we've done this in samples with like a thousand raters, um, the average ratings are very highly correlated with the twin estimates of heritability from the literature, uh, a correlation of close to 0.8. Um, so I guess if uh, you're talking about the wisdom of the crowd, in this case, the crowd does seem to have some kind of intuition about, uh, yeah, height is kind of genetic. Um, I don't think political uh, views are as genetic and I think um, intelligence is somewhere in between, and um, these are largely consistent with um, with the results of formal twin studies. Mm -hmm. uh, and I mean, do we know, for example, because this is something that people, when they're asked these kinds of questions, particularly when it relates to behaviors, they tend to, for example, think about questions related to free will and mm -hmm. determinism do, and do we know where beliefs about free will and determinism stem from um yeah so in these studies we also ask people questions about that um 
I would I would say that among intellectuals, there's a tendency among some of them. I mean, there's a great variety of views. So among philosophers who um, the philosophers of action or whatever they're called, the ones who study things like free will, uh, it seems a popular view is what we call compatibilism, which just refers to the idea that even if we live in a scientifically lawful universe, uh, uh, that um, even if there's some kind of mechanistic explanation of why people act as they do, uh, that this is compatible. That's why it's called compatibilism compatible with the notion that um, that you do have free will. Um, the particular explanation of why free will is compatible might differ from uh, depending on who it is, but um, but basically the idea might be that uh, as long as the action emanates from you, mm-hmm. as long as the mechanisms that bring about the choice or the action are inside you and, uh, and it, it wasn't some kind of gun being held to your head or some kind of coercion from outside that is um uh driving the machinery um that um then the action is yours the decision is yours and that, that there and that this is a valuable kind of free will uh this is a view that goes back at least to david hume mm-hmm. um, but among some intellectuals who are not philosophers of free will there tends to be a tendency to think that um well um you know if genetics has an influence on things and if you go beyond a simple additive model and account all these for these statistical interactions, <laughs> identical twins reared apart often sh- seem to show these bizarre similarities, such as uh, both of them becoming owners of a bodybuilding gym or something like that, um, that this sort of undermines the concept of free will. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that's an incompatibilist, incompatibilist way of thinking. Uh, so one of the questions we asked um, our respondents was that um, we would have them read these stories about twins separated at birth or um, I forget the exact version, different versions we had people read. I think some of them had to do with also with adoptive relatives who would act in a similar way. So that that kind of story implies that the environment that in which these adoptees were raised is important, right? Whereas if you have twins separated at birth and they both behave in a very eerily parallel way um, that implies that it's genetics that's important yeah um so I would say one interesting thing I mean we haven't published this yet but uh, what we found is that um, when you give people a genetic prompt their subsequent endorsement of well did these characters in the story act with free will it does go down um hmm. so it seems that if you tell people things are genetic so to speak that's somewhat weakens their belief in free will. But I would say the other side of it is that even so, the overall endorsements of free will remain pretty high. Mm. Like I think 60% of the sample says that they acted, the characters acted with some degree of free will and that they are morally responsible for their actions. Mm-hmm. Uh, whereas if you make everything seem environmental, that goes up to like 70 or 80% or something. Um, but I would say that, um, uh, yeah, if you think, for example, that compatibilism is the f- philosophically correct view and that people should be compatibilists, that the glass is half full. Um, you can weaken people's intuition that people are acting freely by by implying that there's a kind of um, genetic causation. But even so, um, most people say that, yeah, 
people are still mostly free, something like that. Right. So to wrap up, the... anyway, yeah. Okay. So just to wrap up the interview, I have two questions from a patron of the show, Bernardo Seixas. And the mm -hmm. first one is he asks, is it likely that modern education is what evolutionary biologists would call a mismatch condition? Yeah, so a mismatch condition refers to a new environment or new environmental factors which were not adapted. And so it's having some kind of bad impact on our survival or reproduction. Um, and actually, I've already mentioned mismatch, things like, uh, you know, alcohol, drugs, things like that. Yeah. Um, so the idea here would be that education is something like that, uh, in that um, it's not something we're evolved to do, and, uh, uh, and it's, it's, it's actually harming um, uh, our ability to reproduce. Presumably, um, it's, not, it's having a not much impact really on survival. Um, well, there is a uh, genetic correlation between years of education and fertility. It's negative. So genetically speaking, more education goes with lower fertility. Uh, this seems to be mediated strongly by um, age at first birth. So genetically speaking, more education goes with a later age at first birth. And obviously, the later you start, very likely the fewer you will end up with. Yeah. Uh, now, this is kind of why it's a little difficult to interpret the fertility GWAS at this point, because as I was saying, years of education shows these so-called indirect genetic effects um age at first birth does as well not surprising since they're so highly genetically correlated but yeah. uh but let's just take this at face value um uh that um in fact uh basically we talked about iq earlier but age at first birth shows as strong a genetic correlation with years of education as iq mm -hmm. so and, we, and in some sense, we don't even need the genetic data, right? We can just look at the phenotypic data and we can just see that um, uh, people with more education, particularly women, tend to have uh, fewer children. Um, yeah, I think, I mean, you could ask the question, you could ask, you know, correlations, even genetic ones don't necessarily tell us what is the causal story. It could be that uh, people who are interested in education and want it, uh, would have few kids even if <laughs> there was no education um uh but clearly there's some relationship between the two uh for example you look at um south korea uh it is a country that is obsessed with education to the point that the government is trying to control its own people uh they're trying to ban things like cram schools and uh, trying to strip out certain kinds of questions from standardized tests um, because their own government realizes there's a problem with their own people being too interested in education. Yeah. You have like 70% of um, the people in the relevant age range having at least a college degree of some kind, uh, which I think is clearly absurd. Um, something like Germany, whereas I think the similar figure is 25% seems closer to right to me. Um 70%. Um, 
And not surprisingly, given all that, South Korea has the lowest fertility of any country in the world. I think uh, average lifetime fertility for women now uh, is projected to be about 0.75. Um, so leaving aside the fact that people live on a long time, each generation, uh, more than a halving of the population is occurring right now in South Korea. Um mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I I think this is a serious serious problem. Uh, um, some people say, well, what's the big deal? Um, in the not so distant past, South Korea had a much smaller population than it does today. So, what would be the problem if it went back to that size? Um, but it's very different when you have a young and growing population versus a shrinking and very old one. Um, so, uh, so just a trivial example, suppose it snows, someone has to go out and shovel. Uh, very different from <laughs> when the people going out to shoveling are in their teens, their 20s, their 30s. Uh, versus, uh, let me tell you, when they're in their 40s, 50s, and 60s. Um, and that just, it's just like, it's like that for everything. Um, so... Yeah, I would say that a top priority of people at the top, if they actually cared about <laughs> their own people and their own countries, they often don't seem to. But if they did, um, they might seriously think about this issue of uh, education. Um, many people plausibly argue that education uh, does not impart skills or knowledge as much as it's sold as doing. Often it's just a kind of arms race. Uh, if it's kind of required that everyone have a college degree, then okay, well, I got then I gotta go to a better college, so to speak, or I gotta get a higher degree. Right. Uh, so we might think about ways of limiting these arms races. Um, uh, for example, getting rid of uh, requirements for licensing, requirements for having a degree of some kind, for a wide swath of jobs where it's, I think, pretty clear that you don't need any. Uh, specialized training or university education to do those jobs. Um, we um, There are lots of degree programs that don't need to be as long as they are. Um, so law school, for example, let's think about in America, it goes on for three years. Let's think about cutting it from three to two. Uh, my understanding is in some countries, you don't need to have an undergrad degree to train as a doctor or a lawyer. You can just start training in that right away. Um, that um, could be a good way to do it. Uh, I mean, we already have these crash courses in like whatever you need to learn or you're supposed to need to learn calculus, biochemistry, organic chemistry or whatever crash courses. So it's doable. Um, uh, let's no longer subsidize education. Um, so the student loan situation, I don't know how it is elsewhere, but in America, it's 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 just kind of ridiculous. Um, um, also, um, uh, well, yeah, those are just a few ideas that we can toss out about how to deal with this problem. Mm -hmm. So the last question then, and the second, I mean, some might, people might say I'm kind of leaping from sort of weak causal inferences to all these sweeping policy <laughs> recommendations, but uh, I'll just add, and I touched on some of them. There are other reasons. Um, just just waste waste fiscal and other kinds of waste that uh, wasting people's time uh, their money 
that we uh, that why we should seriously think about cutting back on education. Okay. So the last question then, and the second question from Bernardo, uh, he says, Dr. Lee, in 2012, you wrote a paper about how methods to identify causality developed by Judea Pearl could be employed in genetics. Over the past 10 years, has there been progress in this area of entangling correlation from causation in the field of behavior genetics? Okay, great question. Um, so let me first talk about what Judea Pearl did. Um, so back in the, uh, the early 20s, uh, one of the founders of quantitative and population genetics, Sewell Wright, uh, he invented this method um, called path analysis uh, for deriving theoretically correlations between certain quantities, for example, the correlations between relatives. Uh, the basic idea here is that if you assume a, a linear or additive causal system, like I was talking about before, uh, and um, the strength of the causal effects um, along each of these paths, uh, fixing them to certain values, then you can derive certain observable quantities, such as the correlations between certain variables. Um, so this is a great uh, work of genius that uh, Wright came up with. Uh, later, Judea Pearl greatly generalized um, uh, Wright's method of path analysis. Um, uh, he, he showed that uh, this is not just some funny heuristic with boxes and arrows, um, that, uh, that this, this, this can be formalized in terms of uh, an area of mathematics called graph theory, and that, uh, that you don't have to limit this to, say, linear causal systems. Uh, a lot of... Um, uh, things can be done with nonlinear systems, uh, arbitrary distributions of the so-called exogenous variables and and the the disturbances. Okay, we're now we're getting down into the weeds, but um, uh, but anyway, um, uh, Judeo Pearl uh, did a lot of wonderful work, uh, greatly generalizing and expanding Wright's method and using it to illuminate uh, all kinds of questions in uh, causal inference and uh, methodology. So as for what has happened in genetics, um, I would already, I would always, I would say that um, genetics uh, uh, is always has already uh, been in a good position as far as causal inference goes. Uh, causal inference is often much stronger in genetics than in other fields that rely on observational data, uh, precisely because of um, the randomness of within-family uh, genetic inheritance that I mentioned earlier. Uh, this is something that Ronald Fisher realized. And in fact, Ronald Fisher, who is the founder of um, the theory of experimental design, uh, the goal of which is causal inference and uh, efficiency toward that end, um, uh, he invented this field and he was greatly inspired by his work on genetics. Uh, so Fisher realized that um, if you have random segregation within families, uh, and random, uh, in, um, uh, basically random inheritance across loci as well. This is getting a bit technical, but he realized that the observed difference between genotypes will then be equal to the causal effect of switching one gene for another at this site or this SNP or this factor that we're talking about. 
Mm -hmm. uh, factor was a term used for like a locus or snip. That's what we would call it today. Um, and then the idea of experimental factors, factorial design. The reason why he carried over the term was precisely because of this analogy in terms of uh, the equivalence, what conditions lead to an equivalence between an observed difference and a causal effect. Um, and so um, he had a great quote about this in a paper he published in the 50s, um, where Fisher wrote that genetics is indeed in a peculiarly favored condition and that providence has shielded the geneticist from many of the difficulties of a reliably controlled comparison. The different genotypes possible from the same mating have been beautifully randomized by the meiotic process. So meiosis is this process of uh, random segregation that I was talking about. Mm -hmm. A more perfect control of conditions is scarcely possible than that of different genotypes appearing in the same litter. That is that is the same sibship, the same family. Okay. And so, um, um, so genetics has already been in a great condition uh, uh, position because of this this feature of natural randomization. Um. So um, I think Judea's insights are useful for a lot of things. Um, for example, I talked about assortative mating earlier. Right. So something Sewell Wright didn't realize is that um, that assortative mating couldn't be explained by the kind of paths that he drew in his diagrams. So he would either draw one variable affecting another or or a third variable sending arrows to affecting uh, those two variables. So that's an example of confounding. Mm -hmm. um, but assortative mating doesn't work like that. Um, and there's sometimes textbooks that don't realize this, but um, assortative mating is really a kind of what Judea calls a collider bias. So a collider bias is when uh, you have two variables um, uh, uh, so confounding is one variable sending arrows out to two others. So sometimes we call that a causal fork. A causal collider is when two variables send their arrows to a common variable. So there's a convergence instead of a fanning out. Mm -hmm. um, that's why we call it a collider, because uh, in this box and arrow diagram, you have the arrows colliding at this box, the collider. Normally, a collider does not induce a correlation between the variables of the endpoints, but uh, what happens, um, sorry, I was holding my one of my kids' toys here, but um, 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 but what can happen is that if you um, have a selection bias in your data, it's just that you're only looking at observations that assume certain values for the collider, mm -hmm. that bias will induce a correlation between the endpoints. And so the example Judea used was uh, if you have uh, the pavement, and it can become wet for two reasons, one being that it rained the previous night, the other reason being that the sprinkler turned on the previous night. Um, well, it could be that rainfall and the sprinkler turning on are normally uncorrelated, but if you only look at the pavement on mornings when it's wet, that will induce a negative correlation between the endpoints because if you observe that the pavement is wet and that it didn't rain the last night, um, then it must be that the sprinkler turned on, okay? They're negatively correlated. If one is true, the other, if one is false, the other one has to be true. Okay. Um, so in a sort of mating, what's going on is that um, there's a collider, which is the parent's 
choosing to mate with each other, okay? Uh, the parents uh, hitting it off and going to Han to have children together. Mm -hmm. And so you can imagine that like uh, you have uh, one way to realize this is to embed uh, imagine that your data set is in, of, of, of mothers and fathers, say, being embedded in this larger population of people who have been paired up at random. And most of these random pairs of men and women don't hit it off. Um, uh, they don't go on to get married or have children or what have you. But then imagine that um, you scooped up those that tiny subset of pairs where they do hit it off. Um, yeah. They feel that connection, or they, 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 or whatever, they fall in love. Um, then, obviously, if you look, think about it this way, you can see that what you're doing is subsetting. Uh, you're looking at only certain values of the collider. Uh, that is, when the parental phenotype and the pater the, the, the maternal phenotype and the paternal phenotype, they're sending arrows on this variable. We can call it hitting it off, and. Uh, you're activating that collider. And that is why assortative mating has the effects it does on the correlations between relatives. Um, so, um, um, and this this has consequences for um, theoretical der derivations of what correlations between certain variables uh, should be. Uh, I'll also add that collider bias has become something generally we're aware of in GWAS. Uh, I don't think that was true 10 years ago, 15 years ago. Um, so people are careful of it now when um, they uh, control for certain phenotypes when we're doing a GWAS of another phenotype that you care more about. Um, uh, as I said, uh, it's considered as a possible explanation of these um, indirect genetic effects. Mm -hmm. Uh, and it's uh, something people are aware of now. And so these are some uh, non-trivial impacts that um, uh, graphical causal theory has had on uh, genetic practice. Great. So, Dr. Lee, just before we go, would you like just to tell people where they can find your work on the internet? Um, well, I do have a... Um, web page where I post all my papers. So if you just search for me on uh, Google Scholar, James Lee, University of Minnesota, uh, uh, well, you can see all my papers that way, uh, a list of them anyway. Uh, there's a link there to my homepage um, and there you can find um, all kinds of things, my papers, uh, various items that are associated with them. Sometimes the data themselves or the summary statistics mm -hmm. Uh, that's how people can find my work. Great. So thank you so much again for taking the time to come on the show. And it's been a pleasure to talk to you. Oh, thank you, Ricardo. Hi, guys. Thank you for watching this interview until the end. If you like what I'm doing, please share the interview, leave a like, a comment. And if you can, please support me on Patreon or PayPal. You can find the links in, down in the description box. Just $1 per month would already be a great help. This show is brought to you by Enlights, learning and development done differently. Check their website at enlights.com. And I would also like to give a huge thank you to my main patrons and PayPal supporters. Perga Larson, Jerry Mueller, Hans Frederick Sunda, Bernard Seixas, Olaf Alex, Adam Kessel, Matthew Whittingbird, Arno Wolf, Tim Hollis, Enrique Alenia, John Connors, 
Philip Force Connolly, Dan Demetrio, Robert Windega, Rui Inácio, Zup, Marco Neves, Colin Holbrook, Simon Columbus, Phil Kavanagh, Michael Stormir, Samuel Andrea, Francis Ford, Thiago Nunes, Fergal Cusson, Hal Herzog, Nuno Machado, Jonathan Leibrand, John Linhar, Stanton T, Samuel Correa, Eric Hines, Mark Smith, João Leira, Tom Hummel, Sardus France, David Sloan Wilson, Yacila Dez Araújo, Romain Roach, Diego Londoño Correa, Yannick Puntar, Adana Rosmani, Charlotte Bliss, Nicole Barbaro, Adam Hunt, Pavel Ostazewski, Nelek Beck, Guy Madison, Gary G. Alman, Sam Afzal, Adrian Yegi, Paulo Tolentino, João Barbosa, Julian Price, Edward Hall, Edin Bronner, Douglas Fry, Franca Bortolotti, Gabriel Pons Cortez, Ursula Litsky, Scott, Zachary Fish, Tim Duffy, Sunny Smith, John Wisman, Daniel Friedman, William Buckner, Paul George Arnaud, Luke Loaki, Jorge Stéphanos, Chris Williamson, Peter Wallazin, David Williams, Diogo Costa, Anton Erickson, Charles Moray, Alex Shaw, Amari Martinez, Coralie Chevalier, Bangalore Atheists, Larry Dilly Jr., Old Erringbone, Starry, Michael Bailey, Dan Sperber, Robert Grassi, Igor N., Jeff McMahon, Jake Zuel, Barnabas Radix, Mark Campbell, Thomas Dobner, Luke Neeson, Chris Story, Kimberly Johnson, Benjamin Galbert, Jessica Nowicki, Linda Brandin, Nicholas Carlson, Ismael Benzliman, George Coriatis, Valentin Steinman, Per Crowleys, Kate Von Goller, Alexander Hubbard, Liam Dunaway, BR, and Masood Ali Mohammadi. A special thanks to my producers, Isar Webb, Jim Franks, Lucas Tafiniak, Tom Vanagdam, Bernard Ugni, Curtis Dixon, Benedict Mueller, Thomas Trumbull, Catherine and Patrick Tobin, Giancarlo Montenegro, Aldnick Ortiz and Nick Golden, and to my executive producers, Matthew Lavender, Sergio Codrian, Bogdan Canivets and Vege G. Thank you for all. <laughs>